Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. So I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to Notable Newcastle Authors. This is Michael Blacksland talking to uh, author Susan Francis about her book, The Love That Remains. Hi, Susan. Hi, Michael. How are you? Very well, thank you. The, the Love That Remains, I mean, it's a remarkable book. Uh, a lot of this is, is about your journey, looking for your, your birth parents. Relating to the title of, of the book, The Love That Remains, it's something, I suppose, is the love that you've got to find or that you went out to find to find love or what was love or what, what, what was you, I suppose. I think the actual title of the book is something that I came up with about three years ago and the publishers were uncertain about it. But I think there's a lot of nuance involved in that title. It's about... The love that remains for somebody, even after you've discovered something perhaps terrible about that person, it's the love that remains within yourself for who you are, no matter what happens. And it's also a translation of a Portuguese word that, and I'll try and pronounce it properly, I believe it's pronounced sodache. And the English translation loosely means that sentiment we feel, that love we still hold for a place or a person who is no longer with us. That uh, journey that you started looking for your birth parents, how how did did that start? Oh, that started a long time ago. (laughs) I'm a very old woman now, nearly 59. And I always remember as a child knowing that I was adopted. Uh, My parents had told me from a very young age, so young that I don't even remember when they actually told me, So I always knew I was adopted and I always felt different. I knew there was something beyond me that I did not know about. And and the kids at school, I remember, I went to New Lambton Public and I remember when the children knew about it, they would look at me and ask me questions and how did I feel about it. So I always knew and I suppose I always wanted to know. And when my father who'd adopted me was dying and my little boy was about four years old and I was looking after my father, he said to me, you have to find out where you come from. You have to find out who you are. Because he didn't know who his father was either. No, he didn't. He'd been born in Grafton and his mother had what they used to say an illegitimate child. She brought him back from Melbourne and he was brought up in Grafton. She worked in the pub. He was brought up by the minister's family and he would see her maybe once a fortnight, once a month, and he'd stand on the step at the pub and wave hello. And he never, she would never tell him who his father was. Even on her deathbed, she didn't tell him who his father was. So I suppose he thought for me just how important it was. He recognised it and understood it. The, the first part of, uh, of the book then, I suppose, uh, is about your search for your birth parents. The, the whole purpose of the journey of discovering where I was born what came before me was to know the story. The story is what I really wanted to know. It's funny, the story, I just needed to know why I'd been left behind, who my father was, who my mother was, 
what my cultural background was, what my medical background was. And discovering that my mother really didn't want to form a relationship. (laughs) In the end, I was able to put that aside because the most important thing for me was discovering that information. That was more important than anything else. Mm -hmm. It was having that ignorance or that space behind me. That's what I couldn't stand. I could live with not having a relationship with her or my father, but I couldn't live without having that gap filled. I couldn't live with that ignorance. Ascot, Brisbane, July 2012. Parked on the curb of an empty suburban street on a Saturday afternoon, we must have looked like detectives in an old-fashioned crime novel. But with the downpour from a thunderstorm beating against the windscreen, I struggled to see what the neighbourhood even looked like. My birth mother never made anything easy for me. Staring at the row of two-storey structures, trying to establish a house number. I recall making a sour face at somebody's iceberg roses, fallen petals flitting across the grass. Folded in the driver's seat beside me, Wayne missed my expression because he was busy examining the security cameras dotted amongst the branches of the broad old fig trees. So while the windscreen wipers wind backwards and forwards, I peered through the deluge at the house opposite us Enid's house and fiddled with the letter in my lap, folding and refolding it, creating little shrunken shapes fueled by my anger. Brisbane, January 1992. To Miss Susan Hull, the information you demanded is set out below. The man you asked about went under the name of Jerry Murphy or Jerry O'Connor or one of those other common Irish names. I can't properly remember. He claimed he was of Catholic descent and had previously worked as a police detective in Melbourne. Ina went on to write about her uncertainty concerning this man's appearance, about where he was born and what year. She told me he'd abandoned his pregnant wife and two children on the morning they'd left Melbourne and how afterwards the pair had lived a monadic existence, travelling for years from one state to another. She complained about the fact that some weeks there was enough money for food and accommodation and other weeks she went hungry while they slept in the car. We broke the trip off briefly in Newcastle. We stayed in the caravan park. I had you in the hospital and then we left. The claim she made that I found most difficult to believe was that my natural father was gambling and raising money for the IRA. To support this vocation, he apparently used a fake Irish accent and an alias. Those years were the worst of my entire life. The police were chasing us. I left when they turned up on our doorstep in Perth. Contact me again, Miss Hull, and I shall seek legal advice to obtain a restraining order against you, Mrs Enid Jeffries. I gripped the letter my birth mother had sent me and snuck a look across at Wayne. I've read books about the disgrace unmarried girls felt back then, how they suffered giving up their children or were forced to give them up. He nodded, watching me. But my story is different. That's not how it happened when Enid gave birth to me. For 20 years I've been imagining her and my birth father in a Holden station wagon, red dust kicking up behind the tyres as they raced across the Nullarbor to Perth. The cash they'd stolen was hidden in Enid's purse, lying on the bench seat between them. She was dressed in a linen frock, and her hair was whipped into a beehive. 
I paused for a minute, flipped up the visor to try and see better. In a weird way, I've always fantasised my natural mother and father were Australia's answer to Bonnie and Clyde. Wayne grasped my fingers and the letter fluttered out of my hand. How much involvement do you think Enid played in all this illegal activity? He asked. I shrugged. I don't understand any of it. I never have. Obviously, he committed some kind of serious crime. I swallowed. Besides, of course, the fundraising for the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, who even did that in 1961. In Australia, I mean. None of it makes sense to me. He went by this name or that. He was about this height. She thought he may have been born in rural Victoria somewhere. But this was the man she ran away with. The man who got her pregnant while they were being chased by the police. How could she not remember his name? I glanced sideways out the window again. Her perfect penmanship, her personalised stationery, those measured words. I scowled at the rain. I think she's a liar. Suze, perhaps she was covering up for something else. I mean, is it so vital, after all this time, to know who they were and what were they doing? Whatever happened back then, perhaps you should just leave the past where it belongs. I don't get why it's so important to you. I shook my head, stared at the elegant houses surrounding us. It's about who I am, Wayne. I need to know about my connection to these people, and I need details. At last the sun ruptured the clouds, and an unexpected calm arose. The rain ceased. I twisted to face Wayne. Fright had struck me dumb. I could hardly believe what I was about to do. Clambering out of the car, a jumble of arms and legs, I raced across the tarmac, slippery from the rain, praying he would follow me. I didn't look back. I was intent on just this. Squeezing my hand through the opening at the side of the gate, I drew back the bolt and pushed. The gate staggered open and the house loomed ahead. Pebbles skittered under my feet. Then I was knocking. A dog yapped from within. Solitary footsteps could be heard treading on a wooden floor. There was a kaleidoscope of seconds. Wayne stood silent behind me, his hand spread in the curved small of my back. The door swung inwards to reveal polished timber floorboards and walls painted a rich cream. I could smell coffee. The man at the door was reedy, like a thin pipe, mild-looking and myopic, with ginger hair so sparse I could see the freckled skin of his scalp beneath. He was dressed in a proper button-up shirt with cuffs, the creases in the sleeves ironed in sharply. He stood studying us over his spectacles. Hi, hello, my name's Susan and I think my natural mother lives here. Someone in the house turned up the stereo and a classical piece of music flooded the air. I'd better find Enid. Then her voice, sounding cranky and brittle, shouting over the melody of the music. Who is it? I think you'd better come out here, dear. I glanced at the doormat. I remember reading and rereading the word welcome, trying to make sense of what I was looking at. The music inside the house shifted to a solitary violin. I raised my head and my mother emerged from the end of the passageway. As the sun sidled through French doors behind her, Enid was initially in silhouette, a dark, unformed shape, but her outline developed as she stepped through the light towards me. 
narrow shoulders like mine. She was my height, had my fine hair. Closer, and her tongue licked across dry lips. I was reminded of a blue-tongued lizard. Uneasy, the man tried to get out of the way and stumbled against the open door. It battered the wall, glancing back off him. Inner stepped closer. I smelt the lingering odour of stale cigarettes. And as she advanced from the shadows, almost, almost I glimpsed my own face. But it was a version of me scored with wrinkles, like lines had dried in cement. It looked like my mother had smoked for a lifetime, and over the years, the nicotine had coloured her face a livery yellow. Halting at the door, hands on hips, straightening down a Jenny Key sweater, Enid turned her head from the man, clinging onto his Sunday mail, to us, standing on the outside pavement, between her pots of red geraniums. She was beginning to figure out that something was going on. You might want to talk to this lady, Enid, the man indicated to me, with a small backward wave of his hand. Go turn the music off, will you, Kevin? She turned her eyes my way. She couldn't have been less interested. My name is Susan Hull. I believe you're my natural mother. I spoke these rehearsed words clearly enough, my heart pounding in my chest like a small girl at her first concert. Then something broke inside me, and a fall of disconnected phrases spilled over the top of each other. You left me behind, I was only a baby, why did you do that? The question, who am I, echoes in my mind now, but I don't recall saying it at the time. It seemed most of the sensible things I'd practised saying had dried up or clogged in my throat. The pageant fractured when Enid began shooing at the two of us, like she was shooing chooks. In her mounting hysteria, she stumbled over one of the terracotta pots, and I recollect watching it clatter in slow motion down the driveway. I understood in half a second I understood. Enid would never reveal anything about herself. On my maternal heritage, it was her family, her background. My identity was something she saw as separate to herself, and I didn't belong here. But I was desperate, and desperation made me cunning. In a split second, I redirected my line of questioning. Well, tell me about my father then. I just want to know who he was, what the truth is, his real name. The sudden change of subject seemed to feed her rising frenzy. I could see Kevin's face over her shoulder crumbled in worry. He pinned a writhing terrier to his chest to stop it tearing through the door. You know who the man was, she shouted at me, her face right up in front of mine. I could smell her sour breath. He was famous before he died. Everyone knew who he was. Football players were gods. She was working frantically now with her imaginary broom, clearing us away like rubbish. It was done, probably finished forever, my history disappearing in a witch's sweep. The name, the name, I begged shamefully aware of the sound of my pleading, unable to help myself. Everyone knew the name in its spat through the doorway, hand tightening on the doorknob. Reg Taylor from Melbourne, you know that. Then she slammed the door in my face. I wiped the raindrops off my cheek, reached for Wayne's hand. He shook off my hand and gently pulled me in tight for a hug. The rippling sound of magpies filled my ears. Reg Taylor, who the hell was Reg Taylor? I stared over Wayne's shoulder at the grey Brisbane skyline. Despite what Enid had said, I'd never heard of the man. After years of struggling to accept one version of the truth, I now had two different explanations 
about who I was. Newcastle boasts some award-winning and inspired authors who live and work in our city. You can access some of these stories and more via Newcastle Library's website or app. And you were able to eventually fill that gap with your father as well uh, over in Perth, taking a whole journey quite across across the entire country. Um, that didn't end up, suppose, as you had expected, but there, again, you said... I think it probably helped to fill in a gap as well. Yeah, I had heard from my natural mother that he'd been raising money for the IRA and was a former police officer. And that just seemed almost unbelievable. It was, it was unbelievable. I thought that she was pulling my leg. And I had to find out, is that true? Was someone actually raising money for the IRA in 1961 in Australia? And it did turn out to be true. But he was a man who I certainly didn't want to maintain a relationship with. And that trip across uh, across to Perth was with your, your late husband, Wayne, and that then became uh, the second part of your book there, which involved going uh, uh, overseas with him on, on what I suppose was a remarkable journey at the age of 50, reading about uh, about the life in Spain. It must, be, it must have been quite remarkable there in that sort of country. It was the most beautiful thing you can ever imagine. Yeah, we'd given up our jobs, we'd sold our house, we'd sold my car, sold all our furniture, sold everything just to be able to fund this trip away. And we thought we'd come home after a year and he would pick up his job. I was a teacher. I didn't think I'd have trouble getting a job again. So we had this year of freedom ahead of us. And because we'd only newly been married, it was the most romantic of times in the most romantic of cities, meeting new people from all around the world, drinking in the square. Yeah, it was gorgeous. It couldn't have been better. Granada, January 2015. Our new Spanish home was near the top of a mountain. It was part of a row of traditional two-storey terrace houses built directly underneath the Palace of Alhambra in the old Jewish quarter, the Realejo of Granada. The houses faced directly onto a terraced walkway with one of the finest views of the city. Even on that first day, we could hear the legendary nightingales in the trees above us, nesting in the forest of English elms that surrounded the castle. Wayne, following the instructions we'd been sent, drew an old-fashioned key ring from under a watering can in front of a set of French doors. He unlocked the main door and inside the hallway, the door leading into our apartment, we abandoned our luggage on the pavement and dashed into our new place like teenagers. The first thing that caught my eye was a large print by Matisse, hung on a dividing wall between the sitting room and what I imagined to be our bedroom. Wayne grinned wolfishly at me, how appropriate. I grinned back. It's a sign. Both of us understood exactly what the other was thinking. This was a year of freedom. The personal pilgrimage we were making to pleasure. That la dance hung on the wall of our new home seemed most fitting. The room was beautifully simple. It was painted bright white and the French doors positioned against the external wall to capture the view of Granada and let in the light. But for now, the window remained firmly shut against the face of a freezing Spanish winter. In the corner sat a small stove and a fridge. The shelves held a few pieces of cutlery, glassware, a saucepan. My husband turned serious, wandering from the living room into our bedroom, inspecting every inch of the apartment. There was an ensuite bathroom beyond the bedroom. This room was at the very rear of the house, and the back wall was built directly against the cliff. 
This will do just fine, Suze. Three rooms are plenty enough. He kissed me again in the narrow space between the sink and the large concrete bath. I slung my arms around his neck, melted into his big body. You're shivering again, love. Yeah, it's so cold. I can't believe how cold it is. I never expected it. But I've never felt this excited either, Wayne. We're so lucky, aren't we? Later, after he coaxed the heater into life, we began dragging in our mishmash of luggage. But my husband said, Go take a bath. Warm up, love. I'll take care of this. As I sat chin high in the hot water, he shouted through the doorway that it had started to snow. It was the first time he'd ever seen it, and I could hear the excitement in his voice. I bounded out of the tub and dragged a towel about myself. I wanted to see it too. I heard the creak of the front door as he pushed it open, the slushy sound as he stepped outside. Dripping all over the floor, I stared through the French doors as he wandered across the terrace to the edge of the gorge, lifting his head to gaze up at the night sky. The flakes fell straight down and settled thickly on the shoulders of his black coat. Later, we teetered our way through soft piles of snow to make it down to town. In the frozen stillness of night, we became disoriented, but we weren't worried. We had hours and no bags this time, no place to be. I held fast to my husband's hand. The trip down was much easier than the trip up earlier that day. When we finally reached street level, he leant down and kissed the back of my neck. At the curb, we looked both ways, alert to the danger of traffic moving in the opposite direction to Australia. But the road was deserted. I tucked my arm through the crook of his elbow and we strolled beneath a line of trees strung with fairy lights. The warm smell of sugared churros floating through the air and somehow 20 minutes later we happened inside a half-lit place called Bodegas Castaneda. I remember the Castaneda as a haven of warmth and noise. People were squeezed in so tightly that many had their arms wrapped about their shoulders of the person beside them just to be able to fit. The bar staff shouted across the room to each other through the stink of cigarettes The chefs sang loudly and out of key while they shoved each other about the kitchen. Crumpled paper serviettes were discarded all over the stone floor, flattened under a hundred pair of boots. We'd read about this tradition before we'd left home. I'd expected it. But seeing the nonchalance of it all, it was glorious. It was all so Spanish. I glanced about for somewhere to sit, but seats were not an option. Fifty heavy hams hanging from the ceiling, seemed alive in the yellow light, covered in a slow, oozing fat. They gleamed like stalactites. And roaring across dozens of dark heads, Wayne tried out his fledgling Spanish, ordered me uno vino tinto, and himself una cerveza grande. And we propped ourselves at a table by the window, pressed in on all sides. On the far wall, the formidable head of a black bull, stuffed and mounted, hung beside a portrait of Franco. Our free tapas arrived, a renowned tradition in Granada. You received whatever had been cooked up during the day. In this instance, a plate of shining olives, slivers of sharply scented serrano ham and crusty bread. The waiter scuttled between the drinkers in his black and whites, frowning and arguing with everyone. He almost threw our food at us. Each drink, each tapa, made the night more captivating. Plum croquitas de polo, 
stringent chorizo, tortilla, patatas bravas, which was coated in thick sweet tomato sauce. I was a light drinker, but that night I consumed vast amounts of vino tinto and plate loads of food. And as we stood a touch bewildered within a press of unintelligible language and a fug of smoke, a young couple ventured forward, asked if they could share the stand where we'd planted our drinks. Ernst and Julia were in their late twenties. She was a lanky beauty from New York, now married to her young Spanish husband. Both were residents of Madrid. He coached a first grade soccer team and she taught English at a secondary high school. We're here in Granada because it's where we first met. Linking her long arms around his neck, she kissed him on the cheek. And today it's our anniversary. Her Spanish, when she translated for him, was extraordinary. His English marginal. She towered over the shorter Spaniards, especially the women, and a sweep of golden hair, tied with a silk scarf tagged by Ralph Lauren, identified her as a foreigner. But she was aware when she spoke of ethical sensibilities, of national peculiarities, and always she conferred with him, often just with a quick glance, particularly when she was discussing Spanish politics or history. Both of them taught us much. We learned, for example, that Spain was a country where place held significant meaning. To be exact, the place where you came from was most important. One of the first pieces of information an individual will tell you about themselves was whether they were born in Madrid, or Malaga, or Cadiz. Then the Spanish appellation system contained names from both the mother's and the father's line of heritage. The one double-barrelled surname held place too, through generation after generation. The other sacred aspect of Spanish identity Julia told us about was the importance of family obligations. The responsibility Spanish families felt towards relatives meant that sometimes sons and daughters literally never left the village or the city in which they'd been born. In the coming months we witnessed example after example of the old and the new linked together, the connections of past and present. It didn't matter how often we were out on the streets, we always saw family pushing older relatives about in wheelchairs. On Sundays, strolling past the rows of tables set up outside the restaurants for lunch, every generation was represented. Later on in the year, when our landlords disappeared for their summer holidays, all their siblings and both sets of in-laws went with them too. The contrast between my recent experiences, discovering my family and my search for place, with what we witnessed in Spain seemed a great irony. For a long while I wondered about fate and whether there was some deeper reason why we'd been drawn to this country. Sometimes I admired these ties to family and the past and at other times I recognised that such strong attachments to kinsfolk, history and tradition might anchor one perhaps too firmly. The most interesting information the couple shared with us that evening was about Franco. He is a man, Ernst explained in his uncertain English, who, and he looked to his beautiful wife and chatted in rapid Spanish. The trauma of Franco still walks in the memory of many people, she translated. Faith, family and Franco, they would say, back in the day. But neighbours and friends 
Even brothers and sisters were sometimes on the opposite political side to each other. One might be a Republican, one a nationalist. People were shot or tortured or had their children stolen away because of the neighbours. So now, apparently, everybody agrees that for the purpose of reconciliation, the only thing to do is get on with life. You have to forget the old stuff. You mustn't remember who was a communist or who supported Franco. They're trying to delete history in a way, for everyone's benefit. These days, she explained, if people speak of Franco or La Guerra, they speak in whispers. Look, I interrupted, I'm all for trying to live in the present. This doesn't seem right. You can't just sweep history under the carpet, surely? What about all those people Franco killed? Are they just to be forgotten about? Julia peeked sideways at her husband. It's the only way they can move forward, he says. But you have to understand the reason why things have happened. I looked at Wayne to back me up, but he was, of course, silent on the subject. Everything from your past in some way affects your present or your future. If the problem isn't identified and owned and understood by everybody, then we're all advancing from a false position. We're living a lie. The country will never be whole. We have this issue in Australia too, and it's also something I feel very strongly about in terms of my own personal history. You can't keep secrets about the past, Susan Wayne said under his breath, tugging at my hand, trying to shush me. Ernst tried again, gestured and stumbled over the phrase, pact of forgetting. His wringing hands indicated his rising frustration at his inability to explain. The only way everyone could agree about how to move ahead, how to reconcile both sides of the country, was to bury the past. It was just easier. No one is allowed to speak about that time or what it was like for people. I raised my eyebrows, but Wayne's fingers tugged on mine again. Despite how inexplicable this attitude seemed to me, one glance at his face and I knew I needed to remain silent about the subject for the rest of the night. Thanks for listening to Chats with notable Newcastle authors. We have an inspiring array of e-learning and author programs for you to be part of. To access them, visit Newcastle Library's website or app. This book had two iterations. There was that first version, which dealt with uh, you looking for your birth parents, and then your your love affair with Wayne, the love of your life, who then died very suddenly. And that, mm. uh, I suppose, that was a way of, of you talking about the love that remains. Yeah, I think. I mean, obviously, I've thought a lot about it while I was writing the book, and then as life goes on, more things reveal themselves to you through your subconscious. And I realised that at the end of those two sections of the book, I still had been trying to fill my life with love from other people. So it was about thinking I could find myself by knowing who my parents were, thinking I could find myself by having somebody like Wayne love me. Mm. And, you know, there's no doubt about it that he was the greatest love of my life and I'll always remember him and cherish and love what we had together. But there was still more that I needed to do myself to find to find myself, as cliched as that sounds. Yes. And then the third section of the book was that ended up being the, the full volume that's been printed uh, in 2020. as that extraordinary uh, tales of when you, after Wayne had died, 
getting information about him and, and, and a trip to New Guinea, which is where he'd come from. The hardest thing, people say to me it must have been hard to go to New Guinea and find out what had happened and what Wayne had done over there and whether or not it was the truth or not. But definitely the hardest thing I did was coming home here to Newcastle. Funnily enough, I used that word so easily. Coming back after he'd died, coming back from Spain and starting again from scratch without furniture, without a job, without a house without any money, without anything, and most of all, without my husband. That was much harder than the physical journey to New Guinea. Kind of at this one stage, I thought I was really going to lose myself, whatever there was of me, in that grief for him. And that grieving was the hardest thing I've ever done, much harder than going to New Guinea, even though New Guinea was dangerous and there were things that happened over there that was very difficult. The grieving definitely was the hardest thing. And you went up to New Guinea to, uh, to take his ashes back to there, but also that was part of a whole trying to unravel part of him that, that, that you discovered that you didn't know and trying to find out what the truth was with there about yeah, who he was. was. And this was so much after the event, I suppose. <laughs> he died by then. And he died. He'd been, he'd been dead for nearly three years yeah. when I found this out. And it was... You know, it was almost a repeat of the adoption story, mm, mm. which is why I think that third section is so important because it is almost a reflection of that need to know your past, the need to know the truth and the need to merge the past with the truth. Mm-hmm. So finding out what he'd done, whether or not he had actually done that, why he hadn't told me, understanding the circumstances were incredibly important because to me his love was the thing that I could hold up as a banner of truth. You know, this man loved me, I knew this without any doubt. And for an adopted person, being loved unconditionally is so important. So finding out why he hadn't told me and what the truth of that story was, was very significant. East New Britain, January 2018, Friday. I'm about to meet John here at my hotel. The sky is a broad blue and waves are slapping against the shore only metres away. I'm resting on what feels like the edge of the world. I hear the crunch of the gravel as a four-wheel drive passes through the gates. A taller man, taller even than Wayne, unfolds from the car. He is rangy and thin. My heart swells so much I think I will choke. It's my husband, but also it is not. For the first half hour, below, slow circling ceiling fans, we are stiff and formal with each other. But his hands, his arms, his forthright gaze, the complicated sorrow in his golden eyes. In him I see Wayne, and I think I could sit here with my husband's brother forever, simply watching him, listening to him, saying nothing. For what can I speak about to this giant of a man? who is so similar to the man I love. What can I say that will possibly matter? I fall in love just a little with my husband's brother and feel an urge to follow him wherever the universe turns. I cry repeatedly. John makes references to our Wayne. When I talk about that morning in Portugal, he exonerates me completely. He says, if there was anything wrong with his health, to see beforehand, you and I would have been the ones to know it. His Dutch-influenced accent sounds brusker than my husband's did. John's health to my untrained eye seems in a worse state than Wayne's was. 
His skin is permanently sunbeaten, his teeth poorly maintained, his knuckles and bones stiff. I imagine it is the 35 extra years he spent in the tropics. Twice he says to me, anything you want to know, just ask me. But the one question I must have an answer to seems unable to move out of my mouth. Saturday. John, adult's daughter Rebecca, drives me around the island in a weathered land cruiser ute, always with several boys sprawled on the back tray. She manages an international business in partnership with her mother and is currently attending by distance education the University of New England. Here in East New Britain, she tells me, it is relatively safe compared to the main island. There are armed hold-ups on the road, apparently, but this young woman is confident and sensible. She pushes the gear stick about with authority, rides roughshod over potholes, frankly answers all my questions. Yes, she agrees. The torture and killing of women does occur right here on this island and across PNG, often because of witchcraft allegations. One killing happened last week. The women and girls were burnt with hot sticks, stoned, penetrated with machetes. I swallow. Yes, the custom of bride price exists. In fact, if Rebecca is ever to marry, she says the man will probably have to pay for her. She defends the custom when she sees my shocked face, because she says, patting her heart, the custom is simply recognising her value. Yes, her position as an educated woman causes difficulties, not just in finding a partner. Being a woman who is independent, biracial, and who wears Western clothing creates hurdles. Over the days I spend with her, Rebecca inspires my deep respect. Then she tires of the conversation, points instead to the blue volcano across the soft blue bay, to the tunnels hidden amongst the rocky cliffs dug by Japanese soldiers during the war. She directs my attention to the lines of fish hanging on strings from the tree branches, to the local people standing beside them, fanning small fires to smoke the fish in preparation for sale. Half a dozen silver-scaled slips of white meat glint in the sun, between the smokos and the sea. Rebecca is driving me up the mountains to where she lives with her mother, Tammy. John's second wife, Lillian, rides in the back tray with the boys. Don't worry about me, Auntie Susan. Lillian flashes me a big grin as she hauls herself up over the tyre. I am used to it. With the windows wound down, the air turns cooler as we ride higher. Lillian leans out over the road, twisting her body around the space between the cab and the tray, and shouts through the rushing wind, Auntie Susan, this is my village. The road is almost empty of people. Coconut and mango and banana trees grow so close to the edge of the truck that I can almost reach through the window and pick the fruit. Rebecca pulls the car up at a little wooden stall and buys ladyfinger bananas. Lillian takes my hand, draws me to the edge of the valley, and the green jungle falls away below me, all the way to the gleaming coast. On Tammy's plantation there is a small hut, about a kilometre away from the main house. Johnny's waiting there to speak with me. I tramp along a narrow track, through guava trees, past durian, piled high in the sun, past acres of coconut and avocado trees, listen to the clicking of the crickets, the quiet rustle in the trees, Several bone-thin mutts trot beside me. The female has recently birthed a litter and her black protruding teats drag across the undergrowth. 
John sits in a rocking chair on the wooden porch. His various kids, adopted and genetic, black and white, are scampering amongst the overgrown grass. They knock the guava down from the branches with a long pole made from bamboo. He is surrounded by tools and rusting pieces of metal and bits from machine. His head is bent. He is fiddling some twine around a knife. There are holes in the wooden floorboards and I can see the dirt below. John stands and we shake hands formally. He motions to another chair and I sit beside him. We discuss the history of the Highlands, the famous explorers, the Lay Brothers, and the experiences he and Wayne shared as young men driving trucks for Stan. He is, as they say, a man of few words, but he is making an effort for me. In return, I cannot speak for fear of saying the wrong thing, for fear of sounding foolish, for fear of giving offence. But if I don't ask now, will I ever have the opportunity again? My heart stops beating. John, he knows what I'm going to say. Still, I feel forced to wrap it in a multitude of words. But eventually, I will always love you, brother. But I need to know what happened that night. Thanks for listening to Chats with notable Newcastle authors. Are you low on time? Or do you know someone that's sight impaired? You can also access our audiobooks via the Newcastle Library app. So were you able to look back though, taking all that there and think that you had been loved? Somebody asked me once how I feel about Wayne now and I can honestly say I love him more than mm. I did before, mm. before he died because I think he was much more vulnerable than I ever knew. He... I think in many ways he loved me much more profoundly than I understood. He was a man who was challenged by what he'd done and so frightened of letting me know what had happened that he kept that secret to himself. And I look back at times when we walked the streets of Granada and I think, in all that time, when was he thinking about New Guinea? Was he thinking about whether or not he should tell me? And that adds an extra layer to our relationship. And so that final uh, section, that third section, which, which closes the novel, you've called Finding Myself. So did that become then the end of a, end of a journey? Very much. I, you know, I now have this little house in Mayfield. I sit there in my study, I write every day, and I think back to when I was about 12 or 13 and my dreams of what I wanted to do with my life. And so much of it revolved around writing and telling stories And I feel like I really have come full circle and I'm nearly 60 now. And finally, maybe I'm doing what I was always meant to do. What are you hoping that people will will get out of being able to to read the book, to read your story? Well, my best friend Diane says (laughs) she loves the story because it tells people perhaps in their 50s or 60s, women who are on their own, that there is somebody out there for all of us. I like to think it's about trusting yourself and listening to that voice within yourself and knowing that if you know something deep down and you really want it bad enough, you've just got to keep going until the secret or the goal is realised. And it certainly comes out uh, out in the book there. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating with the glimpses you give of, uh, of your early history 
uh, in the, 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 the 50s in, in, in Mayfield, before you were born, but when you were born there, looking at, looking at that and the way that, uh, that adoption was handled in those very early days as well, where, um, what were they called, uh, silent adoptions or... Uh, uh, private adoptions. Private adoptions, <laughs> yes. yes, it's extraordinary. Here, have a baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I was really lucky, though. I think about what could have happened otherwise and I'll always be grateful to my parents for adopting me and the life they gave me. So as far as your uh, next projects go, you're looking at a, a fictional work. I am, which my agent says isn't very sexy, <laughs> what I'm writing about. Interestingly enough, it's once again about finding the truth and revealing the truth and the importance of merging the past with the present. I think certain themes resonate within yourself and that's what you end up writing about. So I'm writing about a man, six foot five, Daniel is, and he, his mother, his stepmother dies in a fire and he gets some uncomfortable news about what she might have been doing in Timor in 1975 and so it's his mission, I guess, to uncover that. We'll be looking forward to that coming out. Thank there. you. <laughs> uh, and until and, and till then, the, the Love That Remains by Susan Francis, available at all good local bookstores in Newcastle. So it's been great to, to chat with you, uh, Susan Francis. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael, very much. Thanks for listening to Notable Newcastle Authors. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen to keep our story going. This has been a Newcastle Libraries Real Production.